0: mildly my main experience with labor law is um being a bargaining rep and uh being told what labor law is from the perspective of uh my boss's lawyer which uh is like one perspective on labor law um yeah. but uh it, it labor law seems like uh, just a big bag of shit uh, i think this kind of came up um uh, Connor, you mentioned uh, in, in your piece for Data for Progress about Taft Hartley, and this is something whenever I look into labor law, it all comes back to like Taft Hartley being kind of uh, like the big uh, gorilla in the room or elephant in the room. A gorilla in the room is a new a new uh, metaphor that I that I like to use. Um, but uh, it's very, it's what, very what, nice,
1: very evocative.
0: What's what's the deal with Taft Hartley? Is is that, uh, is that right to characterize as kind of like this major fork in the road for labor law in the United States?
2: Yeah, you know, I think that, I mean, Taft-Hartley, you've got the National Labor Relations Act in 1935, then you got Taft-Hartley in 1947. And basically, Taft-Hartley is a result of management finally getting an opening to actually pass something that they've been wanting ever since they passed the NLRA, and getting the opening to actually get it through Congress. So, I mean, it really does kind of live up to its billing because even though it's one piece of legislation that only impacts the private sector on the federal level, it basically provided the model for pretty much every single public sector bargaining law that was passed after that. And pretty much all of them were passed after Taft-Hartley. So it's had like a huge knock on effect for just the way that labor relations are handled in the U S that goes way beyond like the one piece of legislation. And there's, you know, all sorts of reasons that, um, I mean, frankly, it's a piece of shit and it has been since
0: 1947. Sure. But look, all right. So looking at like where like labor law is today, like I know, like, you know, sometimes when like when I'm at the table, it feels like labor law is basically wielded against me to prevent me from doing cool shit. Like whether it's about uh, a scope dis- discussions, uh, what, like who's in the unit and who's not in the unit. Whether it's you know the things I had to ask for and bargain for with mandatory subjects and permissive subjects. Like, tell me, like, um, and either one of you, Jeremy or Connor, like, what effect do you think that like labor law Like, how how is it, like, how is it related to where labor is today, which, um, you know, in spite of like a recent um, kind of uptick in labor activity, including the ongoing UAW strike right now, um, but uh, like labor, labor uh, union membership has been declining in the United States for uh, a little while now. Um, How, how would you say that that's related to um, kind of the state labor law as like a for for, um, labor in this country?
3: Uh, well, I'm happy to answer partially, uh, but Connor should add anything. Um, so I should also add that just like you, Adam, I am a hundred percent, not a lawyer. Um, I'm not an expert on labor law. I have very limited experience, uh, working in the labor movement. And the reason you, you reached out to me, cause I'd written these three articles on AB five in California. I just happen to really hate misclassification. And personally for several, uh, years, I've thought about it a lot. So I had, something, I had some, uh, something to get off my chest with those articles. Um, and I, I worked for the Teamsters Clean and Safe Ports campaign in 2012, which was a fight against misclassification, um, which is why I happen to know about that issue. So I'm definitely not an expert on labor law. But what it seems like to me is that the current labor mm. law, as Conor said before, is very shitty for workers and for unions. It has, a, you know, on the one hand, it discourages collective action. It discourages militancy. Um, It discourages things like secondary boycotts, mass strikes. It makes it illegal for you to block uh, scabs coming into the factory on the picket lines right now if you're working uh, or or out striking in front of GM. And the cops are empowered to knock your head in if you try and do that. Um, And that's what the current state of labor law is. But I don't think we should focus too much on um, labor law as the source of the decline of the labor movement and the source of the decline of labor uh, union membership. Because the reality is that labor law is not the thing that has made the lives of workers better and is not the thing that has made unions stronger. The thing that has made unions stronger has been the activity of the workers themselves in organizing, oftentimes uh, strikes that are breaking the law, regardless of what the law is. Um, we saw that only even last year where teachers in Arizona and West Virginia at least. I'm mean, actually here in Oakland, there were wildcat strikes that broke the law. Um, and they were able to win some of their demands by breaking the law, uh, that shows, I think, pretty clearly that law is not everything. But I wouldn't say that law is nothing. I think there's maybe um, an ultra-left perspective that we shouldn't care about the law at all, we shouldn't care about the state at all, and we should just you know, organize mass strikes, because, of course, that's an easy thing to do. Um, and I think we have to <laughs> strike a balance between, on the one hand, thinking that um, our our sole focus as leftists, as socialists, or as union activists... Should be changing the law from the top down. But on the other hand, we have to recognize that I think the law, and I think if we're going to talk a little bit more about it later, Bernie Sanders' uh, workplace democracy plan that he proposed, while it isn't going to save the labor movement, and while Taft, repealing Taft Hartley alone would not save the labor movement, I do think that Sanders putting forward this bold vision is inspiring to workers. It will encourage them to have confidence in themselves as union activists, as union members, and it will help hopefully bolster the confidence of unions and workers as they fight. And as they build a mass movement that can actually change things more than any individual law could. So I guess as a socialist, my general perspective on labor law is that we have to fight to change it. But we shouldn't think about changing labor law as the main intervention that we're making in society.
2: Yeah, you know, I think that. I think that one of the things that's really important to kind of keep in mind with labor law is that realistically and this is the mistake that union leadership has made for decades is thinking that if they can just get the right proposal through i mean we saw this with the employee free choice act they thought we can get this through we've got you know control tripartite control of government we can get this through and it's going to turn everything around well it turns out that didn't work out so well for a lot of reasons but part of it being that their view of how politics work, of how worker militancy works, of how the building working class power works is predicated on legislative deal making, um, And also, you know, I think that generally, I, I, I really do agree with Jeremy that, you know, we've got to kind of strike this critical balance of caring too much about the law versus disregarding it entirely. Because, you know, from my perspective, I think that one of the things that labor history really clearly shows is that power leads the law. It doesn't follow it. We're not going to get the right policy, the right law that's going to suddenly create worker militancy where it didn't exist before. What we can do is we can take worker militancy, we can take organization, and then we can leverage that into legal gains that make more possible. And I mean, that was what happened with the NLRA. It's not like it came out of nowhere. It came out of workers fighting on the shop floor, you know, fighting in the factories for organization. And that's where the NLRA eventually came out of. Um, And I think that, you know, it gets into this kind of tricky tension that you've got to kind of deal with in how much... Do you care about the law and how it can bluntly fuck up your day if you're a union rep or, you know, a union leader or, you you know, just a rank-and-file worker? Um, and how much do you yeah. have kind of figure out where's the room to break that law, to change that law? Um, you know, realistically, pretty much every single union right that we've got right now is because someone said, fuck it, and did something that was illegal, and in some cases spilled the jails. I mean, that's just a reality that... We're not going to gain anything unless we're predicated on that kind of militant action.
1: Well, today we're, uh, we're talking with uh, C.M. Lewis, who is a staff union representative for the Pennsylvania State Education Association and a member of the Strike Wave editorial team, and uh, Jeremy Gong, who's a member of the Democratic Socialists of America in California's East Bay and a leader on DSA's campaign for Bernie Sanders. Thank you both for joining us today.
3: Thank you. Thanks.
0: I kind of want to come back to, um, I don't know, like this question of like, you know, the the law and like how much to, you know, do it. Like it's important, sure, but we have to build, you know, we have to have, we have to be willing to break it at a point. I mean, like to me, this is why, I thought that uh, Bernie's workplace democracy was particularly important because uh, like, obviously uh, everything in there is cool, but it feels like Bernie is actually building like uh, a movement behind him in ways that other candidates aren't that actually could lead to um, like the kind of movement that could backstop, um, you know, frankly, a a broader workers movement beyond just electoral organizing. Is that something anyone else sees in in the Sanders campaign? Oh, for sure. Um,
2: You know, I think that one of the things that's really important, and this isn't something new to Sanders, this is something he's done um, his entire life. Um, Not only is he putting out plans, which, you know, every single presidential candidate has a plan. Elizabeth Warren has 44 of them, not a single one of which addresses turning around uh, union decline. He's actually out there on the picket lines and has been consistently from you know 2016 to now, or even before he was running for president in 2016. So the fact that he's not just thinking about it in "I'm going to release this plan and it's going to be talked about by you know DC lanyards and they're going to," you know, it's that he doesn't think of politics that way. He actually is going out to the picket lines and standing with workers and trying to actually build a movement. And it's something that, you know, I think is a stark contrast between him and pretty much everyone else running for president is how he just approaches politics. And you can especially see it in how he approaches um, worker organizing and kind of his vision for what the horizons for worker organizing should be.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. And I think the the exciting part about Bernie, he's not just putting out ideas, as Connor said, he's and he's not just talking about the labor movement. He's actually using his lists to turn out people to picket lines. He's using his rallies to uh, lift up and um, give a platform to local union, other social movement struggles, and he's legitimizing the he's legitimizing unions and class struggle and working class politics on a platform that is, of course, far greater than any union or leftist could have had otherwise. Uh, When his workplace democracy plan came out, um, his chief uh, communications director, uh, I think that's her title, Brianna Joy Gray, uh, featured in a video they put on social media that was a few minutes long. That was just one of the best videos I'd ever seen, just explaining the labor movement, explaining what unions are and why they're important, why it is that people who are in unions tend to be better off, especially if you're a woman or a person of color. Um, why unions help to empower workers and then why bosses hate unions and why unions have been um, decimated in the last 40 years. And then talks about here's Bernie's plan to bring back unions. It isn't just a campaign about saying I have the best plan. It's actually trying to educate people, trying to conscript people into a mass movement um, on behalf of themselves. Uh, So that I think is very exciting. And I think his workplace democracy plan offers the labor movement, a more ambitious vision for what they should be demanding in terms of legislation than what they already were demanding, which is kind of backwards from what you are supposed to expect, which is that the social movements and the unions make a demand that's, you know, yay high, or yay ambitious. And then the candidates and the legislation ends up being a compromise and something less than that. But Bernie's actually putting something forward that's even more ambitious than what the labor leaders are putting forward. And yet, You have Randy Weingarten, who's asking for the things, who is putting forward a more ambitious set of demands than they had in the past, not endorsing Sanders, and maybe even potentially they're going to endorse other candidates. So I think Bernie's playing a role to excite people and to challenge labor unions and to um, help to organize workers within them to fight for more than they would have thought before.
1: I think think what sets Bernie apart is his, his platform doesn't, you know, uh it's not a bunch of things that will, you know, in due course or uh, you know, sort of as a side effect, address issues of the working class. Like it seems to be a very solidly, solidly based within the working class sort of philosophy that drives him. I mean, that's sort of where all roads seem to lead for Bernie. And, and when and when he's when he's talking, you don't get a sense that he's talking about like, here's why I would be you know the best president and here's my shiny you know uh you know proposals it seems very directed like he's telling you what i don't know i don't know how to how to say it it just seems like he's he's got a very particular class-based
0: thing and it also feels transformative in a way that the fucking freedom dividend doesn't or uh whatever the hell Kamala Harris is trying, I don't even know what she, she wants to do, to be honest. It just feels like it's it's transformative in a way that every other candidate isn't actually attempting, if that makes sense. Right. and like, more articulate.
2: Yeah, if, if you look at like Warren, I know that there's like this tendency on the left to kind of minimize the differences, and, well, they're basically the same person. That's bullshit. I yeah. mean, when we get right down to it, Warren is firmly committed to the idea that you know, policy wonks in Washington are going to come up with the right solutions. And if we just have the right Right. plan, we're just going to enact that and it will make everything better. Workers, if you even just read like her vision of the economy and her plans, the idea that workers exist in the economy and have agency and should have power not connected to, you know, whatever uh, Congress gives them is totally foreign to her like the workers disappear. Whereas you actually see the workers front and center in Sanders vision of politics. It's in what he says, it's in what he does. I mean, and that's a really important contrast, I think. And hell, we'll not even get into the other candidates who are just garbage on, you know, any number of left-wing issues. Um, But, you know, it really is like a stark contrast in how they just view the working class view class politics and view like people, how do people actually fit into all of this?
1: Right. That's, that's what I, that's what I was trying to say. Uh, so, but instead I just threw a bunch of crap against the microphone for like 45 seconds.
0: I appreciated it though. No, I want to, I want to, I want to turn to actually AB five because part of the, the workplace democracy bill, um, uh, part of the workplace democracy bill has to do with classification. And as you said, uh, Jeremy, the misclassification thing is already something that's coming to the peak uh, or coming to the a boil in California. A law was recently passed. Can you tell us a little bit about AB5 and what misclassification means for workers in in, your, in, in California?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So AB 5 is a bill that um, was passed in the California legislature, I guess, a couple weeks ago, which was very exciting. Um, What it does, the primary thing it does is, uh, or it's supposed to, hopefully it will, end the misclassification of a large uh, number of workers, potentially over a million workers in California that are currently misclassified. And what misclassification means is specifically that workers um, are Misclassified, we would argue they're misclassified as independent contractors instead of as formal employees. So, to give a comparison, the the, uh, classification of independent contractor, I think, I mean, maybe there's a good argument for why that shouldn't exist, but as far as I can tell, it's a reasonable thing to exist. So, you have someone who's a self employed plumber or a self employed accountant, um, someone who is Um, has their own skills, their own tools, their own capital. They might own a truck or might own some office uh, equipment or something and that all belongs to them. And they don't employ anyone else or at least they don't employ a lot of people um, and not on a permanent basis. And they're not employed by anybody else. And what that means is that they set their own uh, hours of work, their own style of work. They make contracts directly with the clients. So if you call an independent contractor over to fix your sink, um, they can negotiate with you how much you're going to pay them when they're going to do it, how long it's going to take, et cetera. Um, and they are treated as a kind of micro one person business effectively. Um, and there's lots of people in our society who I think should be classified in this way or another, although I'm not saying it's perfect. Um, however, the way that miss the way that these companies Uber and Lyft, but it's actually an old trick. Um, and I first yeah. learned about it, as I said, when I was uh, helping the teamsters and their clean and safe ports campaign that I don't think uh, exists Uh in in any way now, Um, but they uh, were fighting for port truck drivers who were taking containers that were coming off of container ships that come into the port of Oakland, port of Long Beach, Los Angeles, or New York and all over the country. And they're taking those usually short, relatively short distances. So um, loading them onto the nearest train, uh, taking them to a depot where they then transfer to a long distance freight driver who might drive it across the country. The latter are union train drivers are unionized. Um, But these uh, truck drivers that are just going from the port of Oakland until their next stop on on the supply chain are treated as independent contractors. That meant that they were on the hook for their own trucks. They were on the hook for all their own gas. They pay bridge tolls. So they would have to go to the port of Oakland, pick up uh, a container, um, then take that potentially five hours to the next uh, stop on that container's journey. Um, And then they'd be paid $200 which would sometimes hardly cover what they're paying just for gas, for bridge tolls, and for maintenance for their truck. They had to get their own health insurance. They were facing workplace injuries. Their trucks are sometimes uh, falling apart and sometimes they're very old and they're causing lots of smog and other environmental problems because they're old diesel trucks. Um, And they're indebted $200,000 just paying for the truck that they got to get this job. Um, And all of this was being managed by what were called dispatch companies, And these dispatch companies would say, oh, we're just dispatchers who work between the uh, port of Oakland and the containers that come in there and then the customers who are getting the containers and we're just dispatching for these truck drivers so they can move them around. We're not actually doing the work. So that dispatcher didn't have to pay for the trucks, didn't have to pay for the gas, didn't have to pay for any employee benefits, minimum wages, um, or any workplace protections. But they were basically able to set the rates and pick the jobs for the workers without the workers really being able to, or the drivers, being able to negotiate them all. So they were being misclassified maliciously as independent contractors when they were really getting the worst of both worlds. They had to right. cover all their own costs, all their own business fees and expenses, and they had all the risk of being part of the business. If there was a traffic, if there was um, a backup at the port, they had to basically pay with their unpaid time because they weren't getting paid per hour. And the dispatcher got all the benefits of being able to pick their own rates and make the profits that they wanted to. That's exactly what Uber and Lyft are doing um, with their system, which basically says that their drivers are independent contractors. They pay for their own cars, um, but we are going to pick the rates. We're going to pick how much how much driving happens in which areas by basically manipulating the app. And we can kick them off the app if they have any sort of minor infraction that we don't like or if the customers don't like. Right. So they get all the benefits of management and basically none of the risks. What AB5 does is it says that that will no longer be allowed in the state of California with some exceptions. They exempted certain industries and certain job classifications, but um, Uber and Lyft drivers are included in that. They should include truck drivers, uh, included lots of other classifications that I know, I know very little about how those systems work, including people who work in nail salons. I think there was something about the adult film industry, newspaper delivery. uh, People are um, independent contractors that are misclassified that, get a in one year from January are going to be looped into being full employees. And that means now that they will have to be given minimum wage laws. They will be protected under, for example, occupational health and safety laws. Um, and they will not have to pay for all their own materials, hopefully so that they can actually, um, just be workers and not have to be super exploited and also business owners at the same time.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot there, but I mean, um, I don't know. There's there's different directions we could go, but the, like the, one of my main questions when I was thinking about uh, AB five and the Workplace Democracy Bill, and even and even when I'm thinking about labor law in the United States in general, um, or even when I'm at the the bargaining table, like arguing about scope and who's in the unit who's out of the unit. Um, I so one one of the fundamental questions is that, and, and you know, this might be just like hemming and hawing, but Bear with me, uh so on the one hand, obviously, I think that given the circumstances we have now um if if Uber is going to be taking a cut of these people's labor, they should be treat- they should treat them as employees just like anyone else does but at the at at, at the same time um you know, when I'm at the table saying, you know, like the supervisors are over here or this person has supervisor powers, this person doesn't, or this is the union, those are the bosses. Sometimes it feels like I'm actually reinforcing uh, structures like bosses over here, workers over here, for instance. Whereas, whereas at the end of the day, you know, I, I don't particularly like the institution of bosses any more than I like the institution of landlords, etc Is there like, I don't know, is this just like a, uh, yeah, man, that sucks kind of tension. But like, is this something that like, um, you think that like, well, I don't know, when we talk about labor law, is there a way to use it as a vehicle to actually go beyond those kinds of divisions and undermine those divisions? Um, I don't know, obviously (laughs) in a certain sense, I'm asking like, can labor law conceived by, you know, as uh, Connor, as I think you put it in your piece to, uh, to avoid industrial conflict, something that's used to avoid industrial conflict, can it be used in a different way that actually undermines a, a class-based society? That's probably a ridiculous question. And I feel like I've been babbling, but does that tension resonate with anyone else? Is, am I just out of my gourd here?
2: Yeah. You know, I think that, <clears throat> I mean, the first component of it, you know, when, you, when you're just kind of bickering over who's part of the unit, who's not, who's the supervisor, who isn't. I mean, part of the reason for that is because prior to Taft-Hartley actually, um, people like factory foreman could actually be part of the bargaining unit. And that actually gave, if you've got an idea of solidarity that these frontline supervisors are accountable to the actual workers um, and are part of the same bargaining unit, part of the same you know, union as them, that actually gave this kind of sense that, you know, we actually have a fair amount of control over our own working conditions because the frontline supervisors, they're in the union and they identify with us, not with management. And one of the things with Taft-Hartley was taking frontline supervisors out of the bargaining unit and making them into mini bosses, making them basically reliant Mm. on management, which is essentially, I mean, that whenever you see a union busting drive, Typically, the speak, uh, the people that are actually put out there as like the, the thugs for management are frontline supervisors. Yeah. I mean, even, even when uh, uh, Volkswagen was technically neutral during the first uh, VW organizing campaign that the UAW launched, even though they were technically neutral, there were reports all over the place of frontline uh, supervisors uh, union busting. And management relies on that. So, I mean, on the one hand, you have, that's another element of misclassification, because sometimes you have people classified as supervisors, like, for example, the grocery store Aldi is notorious for classifying people that are basically workers as management, so they can't unionize. Mm -hmm. Like... That's the other end of misclassification, but it also plays the role of basically making sure that the person that's on the shop floor with the workers is under the boss's thumb and identifies with the boss rather than the people on the shop floor. So, I mean, that really gets into like this idea of workplace democracy. Should workers, one, should the frontline supervisor be someone accountable to the workers or help should it be someone that's chosen by the workers? Yeah. Um, so
0: well, that's it's interesting. On the one hand, because well, well a it all does come back to Taft Hartley. No, but uh, on the other hand, you know, uh, essentially what you're saying is that you know rather than dividing between like supervisors and workers, another uh, uh, one way to divide uh, the, to think of this divide is between people who own the uh, own the shop, the capital holders, and the workers. Like that would be the the alternative, right?
2: For sure. Yeah, I think that that's one of the things is that realistically, those frontline supervisors are paid maybe just a little bit more than the workers that they're supervising. They, you know, have their gripes with the people that actually own the means just like the workers do. So I think that there is that kind of tension behind kind of the historical like the fact that actually controlling the foreman is part of the union gave unions a lot of control over the shop floor that management fucking hated. And that's why they tried to take them right out of the union. Um, So, I mean, I think that that's like it really gets down to the real division. Here is not the person that's like the piddling, you know, supervisor that has a tiny bit of authority on the shop floor, but the people who actually own the means and the people who are actually doing the work, I think that that it gets down to the real class divide.
0: Yeah interesting so i mean like so i guess while well well i've got you uh talking what what is what is what is the workplace what does bernie's workplace democracy bill say about this misclassification thing what, what is he hoping to change in his proposal
2: so sanders plan basically tackles both the misclassification of supervisors which was part of uh was part of taft hartley um as well as the you know broader worker misclassification with independent contractors which as kind of the so-called gig economy has um evolved that's been you know a big part of where job growth is is in these independent contractor jobs that are very precarious and you know jeremy did a great job describing just how bullshit the working conditions there are um as far as actually bringing supervisors like Potentially back into the bargaining unit, it's a little bit less clear whether or not that's part of the workplace democracy plan. So I think that that's potentially something that there could be a little bit more development and uh, actually kind of having that discussion. Now, part of the you know part of the problem is going to be that the way that frontline supervision has developed over however many decades is even if there was once radical potential there and actually some power for unions there, um, it's developed a whole different way over the past 50 or so years where these frontline supervisors usually do think of themselves as, you know, management. They're they're trying to work their way up the ladder. So I guess kind of the question you get into and thinking, well, okay, can we reclaim that kind of idea of, you know, the foreman being part of like part of the union I don't know. I, I mean it's it's an open question if you can kind of put that genie back in the bottle after, you know, fifty, sixty, however many years of management drilling it into these people that you're on our side. I mean,
1: yeah. I, I don't know. That's yeah, uh, that's interesting. Huh. Um I think you and I talked about this with judges on a recent podcast, didn't we, Adam?
0: uh yeah um uh, my my union i f p t e represents some of the judges uh in um that work in immigration courts actually, and they're being and you know i think the 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 since they're public sector employees i think i think the trump administration is arguing that basically their' man- their supervisors or their managers to some degree i think that's like primary the fight how they're trying to bust that union but yeah that that's where we talked about that um um so I mean, like going back to um, you know AB five, obviously getting the bill passed. I'm sure there was like a, vis- a pretty visceral reaction from the bosses, from you know from uh, you know the the I don't even think it's Travis Kalanick anymore, even though I associate that scumbag with uh, Uber. But I don't know the the various uh, tech bro billionaires that probably you know should just that are that are way. Uh, um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. They're they're. I almost said overqualified, but I guess what I mean is they're underqualified. They're just like some random schmuck that that lucked into uh, uh, running Uber, for instance. But what was the reaction like from the bosses over there, Jeremy? And like, what would you expect on like a national level when we're talking about passing the Workplace Democracy Bill? What do you think? Like some of these changes, what would you what would you probably expect? Um, In terms of the resistance to that, and how should people be thinking about how to prepare for it?
3: Yeah, I mean, the one funny thing is that the the main kind of bad guy that's most public in California fighting against that was fighting against AB five and will be continuing to fight against AB five is someone named Tony West, who's actually Kamala Harris's brother-in-law. Cool, Um, and very cool, and. At Intercept, by the way, had a good article about uh, the actual like working political relationship between West and Kamala Harris. Um, but anyways, he's the chief legal officer for Uber. And he basically beforehand was saying, you know, there's no way this is going to pass. You can't pass this. We're going to come up with some sort of compromise. Um, and actually, it's interesting to look. The compromise that they were trying to come up with was leaked um, to The New York Times, I think, before AB5 passed. And Uber and Lyft and SCIU, uh, one of the major um, public, uh, public employee unions in the state and nationwide, was collaborating secretly with Uber and Lyft to try and kill AB5 before it could be passed. Um, mm-hmm. I guess their plan was maybe to come up with some sort of um, company-friendly scheme that sort of had the veneer of solving the problem but actually left much much of it intact and then might have somehow given SCIU some sort of representation rights um, over the drivers then.
0: So SCIU is still playing this game? I thought this is what, like, uh, kind of... I don't know, sullied Andy Stern's reputation as these kinds of like. <laughs> Apparently not. Yeah, that's. I that's mean, wild. they haven't.
3: They haven't learned their lesson. So, so yeah, that that came out. Meanwhile, the California Labor Federation, the CalFed, which is the umbrella group for all labor unions in California, was the driving force behind AB Five, and I think a lot of unions got a chance to denounce SCIU during that. Um, but, anyways, uh, it did pass, and the hilarious memo that Tony West and Uber released um, right when it passed was. Well, this is a disappointing, and this is obviously not the right thing, but luckily it does not affect Uber drivers, which you know everyone has to do a double take. It's like, what do you t- of course <laughs> it affects Uber drivers. I mean, this whole yeah. bill was about Uber drivers and of course, uh, uh, you know, lots of other workers. And they go on to say that the sort of legal framework that AB5 establishes doesn't apply to Uber drivers because Uber drivers driving uh, falls quote, outside the usual course end quote, of Uber's business, because Uber is, quote, nearly a technology platform for several different types of digital marketplaces, end quote. In other words, they're just, they're laying the groundwork for a massive legal battle to um, to misclassic- misclassify. Yeah, that's yeah.
1: like that's that's like saying that's like saying Hitler was a painter.
3: Like no, <laughs> you know, Uber, no, no. Uber's
1: not an, uh, no. I don't know what you're talking about about drivers. No, we're a technology company. <laughs> exactly.
0: Well, well it's well, it's like we lost the misclassification battle. Now we're going to double misclassification. misclassification Yeah, exactly. Well, Yeah. Now we're
3: misclassifying ourselves. Yeah. Um, so they're um, so they're going to go to court, no doubt. Uh, this is supposed to go into effect January first. I assume that the court battles will delay it probably indefinitely um, based on the amount of money and power that these people have. Um, they're able to do that kind of thing. So with the second article I wrote, um, I kind of summarized all the ways in which these corporations can bully um, workers and legislators into not actually doing what everyone agrees should happen. Um, they're, they're also proposing they already have committed $90 million, along with DoorDash, Uber and Lyft, um, for a 2020 ballot measure that would exempt companies from AB5, or exempt their company specifically from AB5. So now that it's passed, it's are okay, well, we're just gonna go to the voters and the voters are of course gonna reject this. Now you'd think that voters would know better because most voters are workers and they don't identify with these billionaires who run these companies. But the reality is that $90 million is basically what it costs to buy a ballot measure in California. We have a ridiculous system of governance in the largest state in the country and the fifth largest economy in the world where you can overrule And you actually sort of have to pass these ballot measures to make major changes in state uh, policy. Um, And because we have tens of millions of voters, you have to spend tens of millions of dollars to reach them. So the unions might have to spend a ton of their resources fighting against a ballot measure uh, that could easily pass just because these people have so much money that they can just send out mailers and TV ads to everyone in the state um then they well, finally it's a I good mean,
0: thing uh it's a good thing that politics at the national level can't be bought you know what i mean oh yeah of
3: course of course yeah and luckily um the the democrats just once they get the senate will be able to pass legislation i'm sure that will help uber and Lyft yeah, drivers yeah. Yeah. um so anyways so they're basically going to throw the kitchen sink at this and make sure that even though this law passed it's not going to actually take effect for them um i really am curious to see how it goes i think that the surprising thing and this is what i wrote um the, the third article about which i know you told me i could swear on this show i i got to call the article uh, a a job for one is a shit job for all um mm-hmm. which was about how the unions that fought for this the teamsters um the building trades uh were the primary unions fighting for it within the cal Fed. these are not unions you usually associate with this sort of progressive universal and inclusive vision of um kind of social unionism these are the most conservative unions they're uh have engaged in like vicious craft union activities in the past, and they have even been racist. Um, and they're and actually the same one of the most outspoken proponents of AB5, which is right now helping workers who do not, um, who are not going to, who are not in the union, although maybe they could get in the union, is uh, one of the leaders of the building trades. I think his name is Robbie Hunter. Robbie Hunter was a very loud um, proponent, or, or excuse me, protester. Earlier this year, against the Green New Deal, he led his union in opposition to the Green New Deal, saying that it was going to hurt the companies that his workers work for, and therefore it's going to hurt uh, his workers without being able to see into the future saying, well, first of all, climate change is going to destroy everything. And second of all, we can have a a green economy where workers will get new jobs that are better jobs and that are green, which is obviously what Bernie Sanders Green Deal is proposing. So it's kind of surprising that the, the unions that put their enormous amount of energy and resource and political capital into winning this legislation are also the ones that don't usually fight for legislation for uh, the whole working class. Um, and so I think on the one hand, we need to recognize that these unions need to do this more often. We should uh, applaud them for doing this, but we really do need to have uh, revitalization, democratization um, of these unions, make them more progressive. And that's why we've been advocating for, as DSA, a rank and, str- rank and file strategy to kind of revitalize the labor movement from below, so that it is not so much about the kind of turf battles of these unions like SCIU and the Teamsters. Um, but also, we need to keep that fighting spirit, uh, as we talked about earlier in the show, um, within the workers, the activity and the organization and militancy of the workers themselves is the only way that we're actually gonna pass legislation like this at the national level and be able to fight to, to maintain it. Because once it gets passed, you can easily see a, a conservative Supreme Court striking it down. And it's going to require massive action by workers themselves. It's not just going to be the union lobbyists in Sacramento or in DC that are going to win these things. Um, And that is going to be necessary. And these unions are going to have to learn how to do that if they're going to actually see these laws take effect.
0: Well, I mean, all right. So one question I have about this, so it's called the workplace democracy bill. And like, to me, if I think about like democratizing some of these firms that you're talking about, Jeremy, something like Uber or any one of these tech giants or, or things like that, um, it comes back to me like uh, in so many ways, labor law is built for the bosses, right? Um, and like one of the, the phrases that I've learned to hate and discovered in my time, my, my brief time uh, as, a, as a bargaining representative uh, is management rights, right? There are these untouchable things in labor law that basically says management is management, like basically that kind of. Sp- like makes it concrete that the bosses cannot w- will always be the boss. The workers can't actually aren't supposed to be bargaining or things that actually challenge their power. Um, and that, you know, I don't know, the, the 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 rights of the bosses can't actually be touched by certain forms of uh, bargaining, for instance. But when it comes to, you know, um, actually challenging their power, I, like, like that's something I always think about in terms of mandatory and permissive subjects. Because when I when I've been told, you know, for instance, you can't ask for uh, worker representation on the board, or rather, you can't strike for worker representation on the board. Obviously, like we've talked about, you know, the law being the law. My first instinct is like, oh, can I not? Um, but also, like, it would be like, I don't know. Maybe it takes us back to the question I asked earlier. But like, um, you know, when it comes to a labor law that allows for actual for going beyond d- democratizing the conversation around hours, wages, hours, and working conditions, but democratizing actually the ownership of the firm itself and the the decisions that are made at the top. Is there a pathway for labor law to play a role there? Or am I trying to impose revolutionary logic onto uh, a structure that, A, isn't built for that, and B, might not be best suited for that?
2: You know, I think that so that's a really interesting point to bring up and i think that it actually dovetails nicely with this discussion about seiu basically trying to sell out um workers to make a sweetheart deal with gig uh, gig economy companies because i mean seiu's notorious is like especially under andy stern being like the poster child for labor management partnership and this whole idea of managerial rights originates with the people that founded labor management partnerships as kind of the forming kind of idea for labor organization, Walter Ruther and the United Auto Workers in 1955. They basically gave up on the idea of workplace democracy and basically conceded that yes, there is such a thing as management rights and we're going to recognize that that is something that you have that we're not gonna contest and that we're gonna work together to maximize productivity and make sure that workers are sharing in that productivity. So like, It's actually like this whole idea of management rights is connected to this kind of bullshit idea that labor and capital should collaborate with one another. Um, And I think that, you know, there is a weird tension in that idea, which is really kind of, to a certain extent, baked into labor law. The idea that labor and capital have equivalent interests and the role of the state is to mediate those interests. I mean that is kind of the way that labor law is constructed sure. and you will like at the table like you've had that experience i've had that experience the boss will say well that's not a mandatory subject we're not going to talk about that or you know you might even come up against permissive subjects where or things that aren't even permissive subjects where they're going to say like you can't even bring that up and yeah. i think that you do kind of face a problem in that i can't strike over these and striking is my biggest weapon But I think that some unions have kind of shown a way that you can basically kind of get around that shit. I mean, because like, for example, um, I remember a discussion I had with someone during the the, uh, UTLA strike in Los Angeles, and they kept insisting, um, you know, that the strike was over wages and benefits. It was over class sizes and stuff. I was like, well, yeah, but the big looming fucking issue is charter expansion. That's the issue that like, all of this revolves around the expansion of charters. And that's not even a permissive subject of bargaining. They can't strike over that. So of course, they were technically striking over other things, but everybody watching the UTLA strike knew that that was one of the big elephants in the room and that there was not going to be a deal that didn't involve some kind of restriction on charter expansion. So even if it's not something that you can strike over, there are ways to still kind of And I think that like teachers unions like UTLA, like CTU, like the St. Paul Federation of Teachers have been really good in this, integrating things that aren't even permissive subjects of bargaining as cores in their campaigns. Like the St. Paul Federation of Teachers, one of their big things in their last contract campaign was getting nonprofits in St. Paul to pay into the school district because their revenue came from property taxes and nonprofits were exempt from property taxes. So getting them to actually pay into the district was huge. Or, you know, CTU with, uh, with the tax increment financing funds that were basically a slush fund for Rahm Emanuel. None of those th- are things that can be bargained over, but anyone looking at those fights knew that those were core to those fights. So I think that there's a way to kind of thread that needle of basically pushing what we can use bargaining for. But, you know, it is true that the way that bargaining is at least conceived or set up it's not meant to accommodate those kinds of things. So we have to really kind of stretch it beyond what it's supposed to do to actually make it serve those needs.
0: Right. And uh, Jeremy, I know you have to go shortly. I want to ask you one final question. Um, uh, something that I was thinking about when I was reading your piece, um, uh, a shit job for one is a shit job for all is talking at the end about like connecting, you know, this one particular fight in California, you um, uh, uh, regarding misclassification to a broader movement or like a, a broader workers movement. Um, one of the things that I've thought about, and, you know, when it comes to these universal programs, I think there's, you know, and it comes up even when we're talking about healthcare often, right? Like what, like if we get Medicare for all, does that undermine unions that have the, the uh, accomplishments that they, that what they've achieved in terms of getting healthcare for their workers? Um, like, but but more broadly, like I know, like part of the workplace democracy bill is about just cause legislation, like uh, universal just cause, meaning that everyone, no one can be fired unless there's a good damn reason for them being fired, which would help a lot of things, um, or you know, a higher minimum wage, for instance. But all these universal things, uh, there there is this argument that you know, if, if, if it applies to everyone, then what's the, what's the point of collective bargaining and what's the point of of unionizing
3: if everyone gets these benefits? How how does that argument strike you? Yeah, that's uh, something we definitely are going to be hearing more and more from union leaders as they see the popularity of Sanders and his policies while um, they are themselves still sort of attached and wedded to the Democratic Party establishment, unfortunately. Um, I think that there is obviously something like rational and reasonable about those arguments, especially from the point of view of a union member who might um, see themselves as uh, you know, maybe middle class or at least they're able to get by and they have health care because of the union ten years ago won them health care. And um, they hear Joe Biden talking on the news about how uh, if Bernie's plan passes, it's gonna take away the health care that they have which we know is total horseshit. Um, but it is it is reasonable that people are going to be conservative about this kind of thing. And I think it is rational for unions as they exist and uh, have existed to think that taking away things like Medicare for all, as Randy Weingarten, for example, has come out, the, the president of AFT, against Medicare for all. Um, it's rational for them to do that insofar as their interests are tied up with, essentially, the status quo. Their interests are tied up with, well, I can manage, I can be the leader of this union. I can um, manage it the way it is. Uh, the way, you know, way things have been going is that for the last 40 years, unions have been getting crushed, workers have been crushed, neoliberalism is ascendant. So I'm not going to ask for too much more because I might risk losing the very little that we have. And I think what Sanders um, and the Sanders movement and the Sanders moment represents is saying, well, that's not enough. It's not enough just to protect what we have. 10% union density is not enough. Um, just getting by is, is not enough and that we can hope uh, and demand something more. Um, So I think technically, there might be some legitimacy to the argument, but I think the more important thing is that things like Medicare for all, uh, things like um, a federal job guarantee, just cause, universal just cause legislation that are for the whole working class and not just for unions, in the immediate sense, in a conservative union atmosphere when the working class is asleep or, or, or declining in its militancy, those might actually take things away from unions, but in the context, which we hope, and if we're not able to reach that context, we should really, I don't know what else we're fighting for. In a context of increased militancy, these are demands that actually make unions stronger. It makes it more likely that workers are gonna join a union that are gonna fight for union, they're gonna strike for union and strike for a new contract because they're not afraid of losing their health care. The the boss can't just fire them wantonly um, and it's easy for them to get another job if Sanders federal job guarantee policy passes. So these, all of these are actually structural, um, we call them structural reforms, because they change the structural power, the structural balance of power between workers and bosses by allowing workers to take more risks and making it easier for them to strike. There was also an article that was written by someone named Matt Dimmick um, called, the, I think, The Good and the Bad of Sanders' Workplace Democracy Plan, where he um, says, you know, Sanders' democracy, Workplace Democracy Plan is great. Um, but we have to be careful about, uh, I think as uh, Connor was saying, just relying on the capitalist state to administer the relationship between unions and employers. And what we should really be focusing on is expanding the freedom and protecting the freedom of workers to strike and making it easier for workers to strike. So something like um, the federal job guarantee and Medicare for all actually make it easier for workers to take risks. Sectoral bargaining sounds great and it could be great, However, if there isn't a strong working class movement, if there isn't militancy, if unions aren't fighting back or if unions are capitulating, this could just become one massive nationwide company union that is used to manage, uh, the, manage the workers on behalf of the employers. So I think that as we kind of started this show by saying, you know, this labor law is very important, but only if it is actually empowering workers to fight. And if that's the case, I think unions have nothing to fear and everything to gain. And really, it's just the union leaderships that are so attached to the status quo and attached to the status quo politics that kind of need to get out of the way so we can actually fight for these things. Absolutely. You know,
2: on a personal level as well, as kind of like a day-to-day level. Like the topic of healthcare is like a big one for me because, you know, I went to college right after the recession, before the Affordable Care Act went to law. Um, my dad got laid off. So I ended up getting a lot of student debt and I didn't have healthcare because, uh, my dad didn't have health care. And so basically I went through all of college without having that. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons that I became a, you know, a radical is because um, when, when I did my master's degree, I was briefly in, uh, in the UK and I was actually covered under the national health system. And it was like that experience was transformative for me. It genuinely was politically transformative on a day to day level when i hear joe biden talk about great union health plans i don't know what the fuck he's talking about (laughs) i do not know what the fuck he's talking about because i actually deal with union members in a strong union state working with their you know working with them on a day-to-day basis and not a single one of them is going to say i love my health care Not a single damn one. And I work with predominantly, you know, most of the members I work with are registered Republicans in conservative areas of Pennsylvania. Not a single damn one is going to say that their healthcare is fantastic. They might say that I have it better than, you know, the person next to me that doesn't have a union job, but they're not going to say it's great. And so the idea that they're somehow losing something by getting better health insurance, I mean, just on the face of it, is bullshit. And you know, on on a purely like bargaining perspective, I mean, you you Adam, you know this probably as well as as anyone. When you sit down to bargain with the boss, the two main cost drivers are wages and healthcare. Mm -hmm. Those are the two things. Those are the big ticket items. And basically, the message from management every single time is: you can have one, but you can't have both. So pick. If you take healthcare off the table as one of those items that we have to bargain over, that money, go you can bargain that straight into wages. Yeah. And realistically, I mean, Tim Faust has talked about, uh, talked about this and talking about Medicare for all. Like the whole idea of health insurance, part of it was fringe benefits that you know, um, firms came up with during the, uh, the wage freezes during the Second World War to try to attract workers. And basically, that was the reason that this was created, but the reason that it continued was it was a way to also shift, you know, to be able to attract people without necessarily driving up wages, which were at that time the big cost drivers. Yeah, the whole regime of employer provided healthcare is fundamentally bullshit, and it's bad for unions. And yeah. you know, I, I'm thankful that unfortunately Randy Weingarten. I don't even know what the hell she thinks about Medicare for all. She, she likes it as a ceiling, but then private insurance. Like, I don't know that she even knows what she thinks about it. Um, But, you know, there are labor leaders out there like Sarah Nelson that are very vocally saying like, no, this is good for us. I mean, this is transformative for us. And saying very clearly that, you know, Democrats like Joe Biden that are playing games with people's, you know, uh, playing pe- uh, games with people's health insurance to score political points—like that's not speaking in the working class's interest.
0: Yeah, well, it's interesting because like, I, m- like my employer provides pretty good health care, um, like in terms of coverage. But like because of the overall health care system, it still sucks. Like I still have to go out to Fairfax to get a certain form of care, and then uh, by the way, I still have to, and you still end up having to fucking pay for it because nothing makes sense under our current health care system.
2: Right. Like, I'll, I'll use the example. I've actually been doing a lot of research on union bargain health care plans, because like when Joe Biden, like whenever Joe Biden brought this shit up and what that other dude, I forget his name, Tim Ryan. He's barely a factor in the. In all yeah. Up, like, yeah. When they kept bringing up like this great union health insurance, I was like, am I being fucking gaslit here? Like, where <laughs> is this great union health insurance? So I actually went out and started doing some research. And even if you look at like major contracts where you've got like powerful unions bargaining in friendly environments, use the example of like New York City has basically a joint healthcare plan that's jointly bargained by public school teachers and all city employees in probably one of the most unionized areas in the country where labor is incredibly politically powerful. Their health insurance sucks. I mean it's they've still got like HMOs where you can only go within a certain provider and so like even if it doesn't cost that much it still sucks. Yeah. One of the things that Adam had mentioned was that you know this idea that if we extend universal benefits that it's going to make the case for why unions like shouldn't be around. I right. mean it's it's Everything that, like, is legally, like, that's part of law is one fewer thing that unions have to bargain. Right. Okay. Not every single contract I work with has a just cause provision. Most of them, but not all of them. I mean, and to get those just cause provisions, they usually had to, you know, maybe not get as much somewhere else. So the less that we have to bargain, the more pressure we can bring to bear on, you know, some other elements in actually building out workers' rights. So, like, not having to bargain something strengthens unions, I would say, if anything, Um, which, I mean, is part of one of the reasons that unions push so heavily for increased minimum wages.
1: That means that they can just bargain better. Got it. So, Connor, talk a little bit about uh, sectoral bargaining, like sort of what it is and and what it might look like.
2: So I think that one of the difficulties when we get into talking about sectoral bargaining is it's really hard to actually kind of imagine what it looks like in the U S because the way that labor law and labor relations have evolved in the U S is so radically different from realistically anywhere else in kind of the industrial world that it's hard to kind of figure out what this actually looks like, because like, um, I'll use the example of like Germany, which has a very well developed kind of sec- uh, system of sectoral bargaining. So um, workers councils, right? Is that what they have? In yeah, Germany? I mean, like workers councils. They've got all sorts of like different. I mean, that is like the the under. That's how labor relations work there, mm-hmm. and so you know, that's probably the best example of how sectoral bargaining works. And in some ways, it's been really good. They were able to bargain down to, I think, a thirty-hour work week um, recently, with like increased wages too. Um, but and like for example, the steel sector in uh, Baden-Württemberg was able to like bargain significant like improvements on um, on working conditions in that region, and that kind of set the pattern for the rest of Germany. The problem is that. I mean, if you kind of try to imagine an analog in the U.S., okay, let's say you take telecommunications in the state of New York. Do you put AT and T, Verizon, um, you know, all of the telecom companies in a room and sit them down with CWA and IBEW and whoever else happens to represent some uh, telecommunications workers, um, or also potentially, you know, places that aren't organized yet i mean there are wide sections of the telecom telecommunications sector that aren't even organized yet but sectoral bargaining assumes that you're bargaining sector wide Mm -hmm. not just you know the shops that have already been organized so what do you do do you sit them down and you know put them in a room in albany and say don't come out till you have some fucking idea what you're going to be doing (laughs) like it's just hard to imagine that actually kind of happening um And so I think that like sectoral bargaining sounds great and is a direction that we have to kind of move. But actually, kind of figuring out how it's going to work is something that I don't think anyone can really kind of envision exactly what that's going to look like right now. And I think that like if you look at the Sanders workplace democracy plan, um, the way that he's got it set up is literally just wage boards which isn't actually true sectoral bargaining, but it is like, it's a way to lay the groundwork for sectoral bargaining in a way that doesn't give up any of the leverage that unions have on the actual shop floor and represented shops. So, I mean, it's a way to kind of set that groundwork for sectoral bargaining without giving anything up in the interim. So like, I think that, I mean, sometimes I think that sectoral bargaining is kind of a buzzword. Like SEIU loves the idea of sectoral bargaining, and they're not wrong. But I think that sometimes it's kind of a buzzword that we think that if we can just get these kind of structural fixes and change the way that labor law works, it's going to substitute for the hard work of rebuilding the labor movement. And I think that there's a role for it, but we also need to understand that, one, on a practical level, what we're able to accomplish with it in the short term just on an implementation level is going to be limited and yeah. what we're able to actually, you know, accomplish with it as far as turning around the labor movement, I mean, that's not going to be what you know reverses labor's fortunes. So, right. I think there's a role for it and it's something that we need to look at and we need to think about organizing sectorally whether or not it's, you know, part of some policy proposal. We need to organize sectorally. But at the same time, we need to also kind of avoid this idea that it or any other proposal is going to be like a panacea that's going to fix everything.
0: Yeah, I w- w- so we recently talked to uh, Lee Phillips and Neil uh, Waz- um, who actually is a union rep also in, in the education sector in Vancouver. But they wrote a book about economic planning. Uh, People's Republic of Walmart, which I really like, but they they didn't want to articulate like what what actually would a democratic form of economic plan look like, and like to me, I've always thought like you know the uh, the workers councils model or um, that type of thing like like that could be a really powerful democratic model. But I think you're right. It's it's it feels like maybe it's so far down the line that it's hard to actually imagine. And when we ask uh, Rosworski and Phillips about like what is it at? What do these structures actually look like for economic planning? They were they were like very like oh you know we don't we don't want to get into that like they didn't want to articulate that because it's you know essentially me and Casey were like well, tell tell us what your socialism looks like and they're like come on don't let us don't make us uh get into the weeds on that but um I don't know like I like it's like the, Hunter, is, the is there is there infrastructure that could be put in
1: place while we're looking into the future at that sort of model, you know, not knowing quite what it looks like, but are there certain uh, structures that we know will have to be there that maybe we can lay or at least I don't know, start being more proactive about in the meantime so that as things, as opportunities present themselves to grow closer in that direction in the future, those things would already be there and facilitate it
2: yeah you know i think that there's uh increasingly kind of a push on a municipal level um you know to set up kind of municipal formal or informal kind of like labor boards uh, that actually kind of look at local working conditions. sometimes they're able to actually get these things kind of like made an appendage of like municipal government. but whether or not the you know you're able to do that, just bringing in union leaders bringing in the community and creating it on the explicit lines that what we are organizing here is something that is going to try to assert some level of authority even if it's just the authority to name and shame over the local economy and the local like labor market. And so the idea of actually building these kind of interim structures where we can actually try to kind of create this idea that workers and, you know, organizations representing workers should be the ones that are the primary decision makers here. So I think that wage boards are kind of like a big level kind of way that we can start laying that groundwork um, depending on how they're composed because, of course, then you start getting into the question of well, what about industry reps being on there and, you know, management associations. But you, I mean, there are grounds to like, from the municipal level on up, create these kind of interim, you know, bodies that can actually try to kind of like create this idea that workers are the ones that should be calling the shots over the local economy. So, I mean, making that power real in kind of the ability to actually like exercise it is kind of a different question, but I think that we can like that's something that can be done on a scalable level from the municipal level but you know on up, right?
0: Um, huh. But but yeah, this was this was cool. Um, we, but we should probably let you go.
2: No, that's no problem. Sorry, I'm just like I can babble on about this shit
0: like all fucking day. It's, oh, so can we? So can we? Yeah. We've done that, but we we've we've done that to people before. So I appreciate yeah. you being a good sport about it. But yeah. um. Uh, that's it for this week on future left podcast um big thanks to our guest connor lewis uh of the strike wave editorial team jeremy gong uh, of the democratic socialists of america uh for future left uh i'm adam and i'm casey thanks connor thanks jeremy thanks thank you so yeah. much